Welcome to From Cork with Love Adventure, the only programme from Cork, Ireland, in which you can hear what it's like to be Irish in Cork from the point of view of a totally unrepresentative man. This is Paul Amani welcoming you to the latest episode. From the Garden to the Wild is the general title of part two of Wanderlust, A History of Walking by Rebecca Solnit. And I guess I'm out in the wild, although this isn't really all that wild. But I'm walking along a track. On the right-hand side of me is a couple of horses. On the left-hand side, three or four horses. And in front of me, Louis the dog walks. There's a nice little photograph, black and white photograph, of people climbing up along an ice ridge, covering the, the title, or on top of the title, from the garden to the wild. So let's uh, see what's coming in chapter 6. The path out of the garden. Part 1. Two walkers and three waterfalls. Two weeks before the end of the century, a brother and sister went walking across the snow. They were dark-complexioned, and their friends remarked that they could see their bad posture when they walked, but the resemblance entered there. He was tall, Roman-nosed, calm, while she was small and had fiery eyes that everyone noticed. The first day of their journey, December 17, they had gone 22 miles on horseback before they parted with their friend, the horse's owner, and walked another 12 miles to their lodgings. Having walked the last three miles in the dark and two of them over hard, frozen road, to the great annoyance of our feet and ankles. Next morning the earth was thinly covered with snow, enough to make the road soft and prevent its being slippery. As they had the day before, the travellers turned aside to see a waterfall amid this mountainous landscape. I'd better stop reading as I negotiate this uh, patch of slim patch of mud in between water on either side. If I were to slip into the water, my afternoon would be would be worse than ruined. Oh, phew! That was safety was not to be taken for granted. As they had the day before, travellers turned aside to see a waterfall amid this mountainous landscape. It was a keen, frosty morning, the brother went on in his Christmas Eve letter. Showers of snow threatened us, but the sun bright and active. We had a task of 21 miles to perform in a short winter's day. On a nearer approach, the water seemed to fall down a tall arch, or rather niche which had shaped itself by insensible moulderings in the wall of an old castle. We left this spot with reluctance, but highly exhilarated. In the afternoon they came upon another waterfall, whose water seemed to turn to snow as it fell amid the ice. He continued, 
The stream shot from between the rows of icicles in irregular fits of strength, and with a body of water that momently varied. Sometimes it threw itself into the basin in one continued curve. Sometimes it was interrupted almost midway in its fall, and being blown towards us, part of the water fell at no great distance from our feet, like the heaviest thunder shower. In such a situation you have at every moment a feeling of the presence of the sky. Above the highest point of the waterfall, large fleecy clouds drove over our heads, and the sky appeared of a blue more than usually brilliant. After the detour of the waterfall, they walked the next ten miles in two and a quarter hours, thanks to the wind that drove behind us and the good road. I have to negotiate more mud. I dropped a piece of paper from within the within the book. I have no real idea of its significance, but it's too difficult to examine it properly. So let's walk on. Better make a move on. Thanks to the wind that drove behind us on the good road. And he seemed to relish their prowess in walking almost as much as the scenery. Seven more miles took them to their next resting spot. And in the morning they walked into Kendall, the gateway to the Lake District, where they had come to live. I wonder if this Wordsworth and Dorothy. The century they were approaching as fast as their new home was the 19th century. And the home was a cottage on the outskirts of the small lakeside village of Grasmere. The two vigorous walkers themselves were, as many may have already guessed, William and Dorothy Wordsworth. What they did on those four days across the Pennine Mountains of North England, what they had done and would do as walkers was extraordinary. What exactly makes it so hard to pin down? People had begun by the time of the poets and his sister's birth nearly 30 years before to admire some of the wildest features of the British countryside. Mountains, cliffs, moors, storms and the sea, as well as waterfalls. In France and Switzerland, a few people had begun to climb mountains, the summit of Mont Blanc. Europe's highest peak had first been reached 14 years earlier. Wordsworth and his companions, now I'm looking at the path. (coughs) Wordsworth and his companions are said to have made walking into something else, something new, and thereby to have founded the whole lineage of those who walk for its own sake and for the pleasure of being in the landscape from which so much has sprung. Most who have written written about this first generation of romantics propose that they themselves introduced walking as a cultural act, as part of an aesthetic experience. Christopher Morley wrote in 1917, I have always fancied that walking 
as a fine art was not much practiced before the 18th century. We know from Ambassador Jurosson's famous book how many wayfarers were abroad on the roads in the 14th century, but none of these were abroad for the pleasures of moving meditation and scenery. Generally speaking, it is true that cross-country walks for the pure delight of rhythmically placing one foot before the other were rare before Wordsworth. I always think of him as one of the first to employ his legs as an instrument of philosophy. Morley was not far off the mark in his first sentence, though much of the 18th century had passed before Wordsworth was born in 1770. But then he conflates walking as a fine art with cross-country walking, which is where the confusion slips in. We just met a horse. And we had better... Louis, come here. I'm going to put you on a lead. Come here. Come here. Yeah. And we are going to try and walk around this horse. Let's see how we get on. I see two horses. This explains why... Oh, I see three horses. Now, this has completely disrupted the reading. The day I met... The day we met three horses on the path... Horses are ignoring Louis. Louis has no interest in horses. Louis's getting out of the way of the horse. The horse came towards Louis gently with its head poked in Louis's direction and Louis pulled away to the other side of me. Now there's another pony coming. This looks more like a pony than a horse. There'll be no reading until we've passed this horse. And I can let Louis off the lead again. The path here, or the... Yeah, the path is all grass here. And if I'd walked in the field, I would have got thoroughly wet because the grass is growing long in the field. They grow silage there. And all my... I'd been wet halfway up my calf. The blackberries are going off now. I've missed them. My chance of coming down here with a bucket and filling the bucket with enough to freeze for the winter. Gone. That pony is behind us now and you can go forward well if anybody has come here for a pure reading of Rebecca Solnit there'll be a little disappointment then again I'm reading it for the experience of the walk and the book since Morley the subject of walking and English culture has been taken up in three books all of which go further in proposing that it was the late 18th century when Wordsworth and his peers set out afoot that this walking began. 
Morris Marple's delightful 1959 Shanks Pony, A Study of Walking, Andy Wallace's 1993 Walking Literature and English Culture, and Robin Jarvis's 1998 Romantic Poetry and Pedestrian Travel all use as their demonstration case the German minister Karl Moritz. During his walk across England in 1782, Moritz often found himself scorned and ejected by innkeepers and their employees, while coachmen and carters continually asked him if he wanted a ride. He concluded that it was his mode of travel that made him seem out of place to those he he encountered. A traveller on foot in this country seems to be considered as a sort of wild man or an out-of-the-way being who is stared at, pitied, suspected and shunned by everybody that meets him. End quote. Reading his book, one is moved to speculate on whether his dress, manner or accent disconcerted the people he encountered rather than his walking. But his explanation is largely accepted by the three who cite him. Travel itself was enormously difficult until the late 18th century in England. The roads were atrocious and plagued by highwaymen and their pedestrian equivalents, footpads. Those who could afford to went by horse or by coach, carriage or at worst wagon, sometimes with weapons walking along the public roads often signified that one was either a pauper or a footpad at least until the 1770s, when various intellectuals and eccentrics began to walk there for pleasure. By the late 18th century, the roads were improving in both quality and safety, and walking was becoming a more respectable mode of travel. On the cusp of the next century, the Wordsworths were having a splendid time walking not only roads but fells and byways. Fear of crime and denigration seems to be the furthest things from their mind as they admired the view and enjoyed their own powers of walking in weather that would keep most people huddled indoors. They had visited the Lake District six years before their midwinter walk. I walked with my brother at my side from Kendal to Grasmere, 18 miles, and afterwards from Grasmere to Keswick, 15 miles through the most delightful country that has ever been seen, wrote Dorothy in the initial flush of pleasure after that excursion in 1794. Ah, we come to a gate. We come to a gate here. And what do I have to do to get out this gate? Perhaps I can... So I can undo it here at one end, unravel it through here, eat a blackberry on the way. The dog can easily negotiate, can't you? You come in, Louis. Come on. Come on around. Come on. Now return the return this thing to the wire here. Eat a few more blackberries. These ones at least are not dried up. Maybe I should turn this around 
so that it tightens up a little. Mission accomplished. So far from considering this as a matter of condemnation, I rather thought it would have given my friends pleasure to hear that I had courage to make use of the strength with which nature has endowed me, when it not only procured me infinitely more pleasure than I should have received from sitting in a, in a post-chaise, but it was also the means of saving me at least 30 shillings. End quote. If we take Dorothy Wordsworth in 1794 rather than Karl Moritz in 1782 as our witness, we find cross-country was nothing worse than, lady than unladylike and unconventional. Though Wordsworth is in some sense the founding father and therefore Dorothy the aunt, of a modern taste that has done much to shape the more pleasant parts of our world and the imaginations of those in it, he himself was heir to a long tradition, and so it is more accurate to see him as a transformer, a fulcrum, a catalyst for the history of walking in the landscape. His precursors, it is true, had not walked much on the public roads, and for the most part, neither do his modern descendants, since cars have made roads dangerous and miserable again. Though many travelled on foot out of necessity before him, few did so for pleasure. And these hist historians therefore conclude that walking for pleasure was a new phenomenon. In fact, water had, walking had already become an important activity, though not as travel. Few of Wordsworth's pedestrian antecedents are to be found travelling along the public roads, but many of them were strolling in gardens and parks. Thus ends part one of chapter six. So we're going to now go from the wild countryside back to people perambulating in, in gardens, whom I presume were the nobility. We'll see what comes next. That was from Cork with Love Adventure, sponsored by Nobody. This is your host, Paul Omani, saying I hope it was worth your while listening. Bye for now.